you should trust people who are in it for journalism to say, actually, this is real. I, I did this and that to draw your attention to certain places, but I'm not faking anything. If I wanted fake stuff, I would be an artist, not a journalist. Hello and welcome to Here in L.A., Montecito Heights edition. Today, we talk with Ryan Schutte. Ryan is a Midwesterner like me who moved out to California for college and never looked back. Same. He takes incredible, unique, awe-inspiring photographs that look like trick photography. But Ryan swears there's nothing up his sleeves. Just extensive planning, perfect lighting, and subjects who can stand still. We'll also talk about his love of rollerblading, how he took advantage of the company he was working with to get his first epic photos, and what's good in Montecito Heights. So please welcome Ryan Schutte. We are here in Montecito Heights with Ryan Schutte. Is that how you say it? That's how you say it. Is that Polish? You know, I was just doing some research on this because we were told it was Polish growing up, that, you know... Dad's side of the family was Polish, mom's was Irish. That was the whole narrative. Turns out it only takes one person to do 23andMe for that to go out the window. And it looks like our uh, grandpa Leo changed his name at some point from Shuda to Shooty. And the my brother's uh, 23andMe said n- vaguely Northeastern European. So Polish, German. Uh, I, the only place I've seen Shudi is was in Germany. Uh, oh. So... But yeah, we were told Polish. That's why I don't want to do 23s and yeah. <laughs> I like the myth. I like the folklore. Yeah. Just leave it alone. Yeah. You know? So we're here in Montecito Heights. You are originally from the suburbs of Chicago, like I am. Yep. Um, do you say where in the suburbs you're from? Yeah. Hinsdale Central was where it all happened. Uh, what's the name of the high school? Hinsdale Central. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, was there other Hinsdale high schools? There was a Hinsdale South. Um, the creativity of the Midwest. I know. In a, in a previous interview that you did, you were talking about how Illinois is a great place to grow up, but it's not the greatest for creativity, and California kind of is, and mm-hmm. I could not relate more. Yeah. Um, you ended up going to college in San Francisco, the Art Institute? Yep. Um, where did you live in San Francisco? So first, before uh, SFAI, I went to St. Mary's, which is in the East Bay. Uh, randomly, I did not grow up Catholic, but uh, I applied to all the state schools up and down the coast, didn't get into any of them because uh, apparently it's really hard. I didn't have terrible grades, but it was just hard for transplants to go to a state school at the time. I think I did get into San Jose State and I visited and I was like, nah. So then <laughs> I started looking into private schools and uh, I mean, even though it's in like this retirement community, and this very small liberal arts school, which wasn't initially on my radar. So then this beautiful campus, and um, it was great. I actually got a really well-rounded literary education there that I didn't expect, even though I was a business admin major. So I, I got my undergrad there and fell into photography along the way. Was St. Mary's used, did that used to be an all-girls school? The one in Minnesota is. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you you got your degree in business, and then you went to San Francisco State. Yeah, or San Francisco Art Institute. Right, right. Yeah, because uh, you know I was 
like I said, rollerblading since, you know, all of high school. And I always put it on the back burner, but that's how I got into photography. But I never took it seriously enough to learn what I was doing. I just kind of took snapshots, got more into it throughout college. Um, but, you know, I was brought up in a situation where I, I felt I had to become some sort of entrepreneur or do something in business so that I could support myself. Arts were never on my radar in high school. My pre-college classes were uh, like marketing and stats and typing. Like I didn't uh, even really explore arts in high school so much aside from video and photo of rollerblading, which I didn't consider art at the time. So in college, you know, I explored what little of an art department they had there, which was a lot of studio arts. You know, we did Super 8 filmmaking, we did sculpture, painting, woodblock etching, a lot of uh, traditional studio arts. My teacher there really encouraged me. I ended up applying to SFAI, to, and they gave me a scholarship. Oh, wow. And, you know, I just wanted a few... I knew I wanted to go in photography, but I didn't know how smart it was to go without any formal education at all. So I was like, let me at least get a year under my belt at the art school and see what that's like. I, there had to be something going on as an undergrad for you to have this bug. Was it a, can, can you nail it down to one picture or uh, uh, an assignment you had? Was there one thing that really yeah, clicked for you? Yeah, it was rollerblading. It, it was trying to figure out how to capture what we were doing. So in that sense, it wasn't even really art yet. It was still documenting. And it was trying to find a really technical way to document this thing. And then throughout that, you just naturally experiment and start finding other fun things to do. Because I was taking those studio art classes, um, if I was to say there was another kind of pivot point that allowed me to look at photography more as an art form it was the super 8 film class because that professor very much showed us lee brackage and uh, all these guys who were just like scratching on the negs and making these wild art films and so i would say that class more than anything opened my eyes to like oh we can use this as a creative form of expression uh did did you guys develop your own super 8 uh no you sent it out. Yeah, we sent the Super 8 out, but I did learn to develop film in a closet. This is how like small, there was no photo department at the school, but I was shooting for the newspaper, and the newspaper was one guy who taught me how to develop in a closet. <laughs> we printed all the negs. There wasn't a digital camera yet, so I learned that all before going to art school, just shooting like soccer and baseball for the school newspaper. God bless journalism. I know. <laughs> I, I ask people all the time, Did you were you part of the college newspaper? And they're like, no. And I'm like, I can't imagine a better place to learn. Yeah, it was great. And and when your peers are seeing what you do every day or a lot or every week, I guess nowadays, no better feedback. Right. Especially if they're strangers. Yeah. You know, and otherwise you paint a painting and it ends up on a, in, in a gallery somewhere. 18 people drinking wine see it. Who cares? Right. You know? <laughs> so uh, the other thing that interests me about this story is I get a lot of mixed messages about art school. Yeah. And how it's a total waste of time. <laughs> and it's only for rich kids who don't know what they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like for you, it actually accomplished what it was supposed to. Yeah. Especially SFAI because 
they're so uh, heavily conceptual based. Like it, I even though I was going in wanting to shoot blading and and learn these tech things that they didn't care about. Uh, again, the classes that were available to me there, and this was all proximity. I love San Francisco. Being in the East Bay, I would spend more time in San Francisco than anywhere else because that's where everything was happening. Um, so I knew I wanted to go there no matter what. And it was, you know, there was a trade school, there was Academy of Art, but that even then, as little as I knew about art versus craft, I was like, this looks like uh, that, what you're talking about, the waste of time where it was like, I'm just going to spend too much money on this school and it's just going to teach me like corny studio stuff. Whereas this other school was where all the cool kids were. They were doing wild shit, and I wanted to be in that world. And uh, thankfully, they let me in. But I, I wouldn't say it was a waste of time. I would say it opened my eyes even further. It was a whole nother level than the classes I was taking at St. Mary's, obviously. Uh, the professors there were all over the place as far as where they took conceptual art, but they took it in places I didn't expect. And... Uh, I only did go there for a year, but that was uh, definitely an eye-opening experience that influenced everything I did from then forward. Uh, right after that year, did you move to L.A.? No. So I kind of flailed around SF, and I was traveling a bunch, shooting rollerblading. I started submitting to a magazine in San Diego. You loved rollerblading. I mean, it was my life. For 12 years, I'd say it was all I thought about. This is a little bit shocking to me. Yeah. <laughs> because... I, again, I'm older than you. Yeah. And when I was a kid, roller skating was like huge. Right. Like super huge. Yeah. And when rollerblading happened, a lot of us looked down on it. Oh, I mean, still, it's had stigma since day one. <laughs> there was like a few years where it got popular, but not with the cool kids. It was popular worldwide because of this trend, but it very quickly became out of fashion and went back to just being mocked. And uh, you didn't care. Well, what are you going to do? You, you're, I grew up skateboarding. I, I didn't want to fall in line with whatever, you know, I still skateboarded, snowboarded. So to me, it didn't make a difference. Like just because people thought this, I mean, if I cared about shit like that, I wouldn't have done gymnastics either. You know, like I would have played football or something. Uh, the people who did make it cool. Yeah. Hockey players. Sure. I mean, they started to find a way to bring some aggression into it and then it started basically copycatting skateboarding as far as rails and gaps and all these yes. big stunts which were very much what we were involved in so you were doing that stuff too oh yeah big well, i time. guess as a gymnast you're perfectly suited well, for weird tricks in this to some flipping. there was a yeah we didn't do a ton of the ramp and flip stuff i mean that was certainly an aspect but this was more just pure street rails and and big gaps off stairs and that was right. that was my thing so i'll show you some clips later but okay. um this dominated everything so i was you know picking up work shooting little league uh kids for like 10 bucks an hour or whatever it was at the time and just trying to pay rent submitting to the magazine traveling around shooting stuff on spec eventually got a job uh as a photo editor so i moved down to san diego and that was my first full-time job out of school. Which Photo editor where? It's called Daily Bread Magazine. Okay. And from 2003 to uh, almost 2007, I was the photo editor and staff photographer because it's such a small organization. 
I had to shoot 90% of it, but as much as we could afford to uh, bring on contributors, I managed them as well. So I was traveling all over the world and just, it was a dream job, you know? They had a budget to travel you everywhere? You know, we'd work it out with the sponsors for events and uh, it wasn't often, but yeah, there was a few instances where I'd end up in Paris and then Barcelona and yeah, it, it was great. And, and a lot of just going to the East Coast, going to where the big competitions were, uh, taking going on tour with a, a certain team at, from time to time. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. And, uh, and then it went under. Of course. Yeah. What got you to L.A.? So when the magazine went under, I knew that San Diego was too small of a market to, again, people make it happen, but... For the most part, if you're going to be a commercial photographer, unless you want to do weddings on the side, why not go to L.A.? It's two hours away. I had friends here who were already assisting, which was the best way to kind of get the knowledge in commercial photography. Because mm-hmm. even though I had done you know, fine art stuff and then I had done all this rollerblading stuff, I didn't have anything in my book that was appropriate to get work as a commercial photographer. So... I was like, I got to start from scratch. I don't know what that looks like, but I think assisting is the way. And because I knew my friend was able to, you know, at least pay his rent assisting other photographers and learn what real lighting looks like. Mm. Um, But even assisting is, you can't like apply to be an assistant. It's very word of mouth. It's very much, uh, you got to be entrenched in the community. So while that was happening, I got a job at a rental house. And again, I'm 27 years old. I have undergraduate degree in business, and I'm making 10 bucks an hour at a rental house as a clerk. Oh my God. So this felt, to some extent, a bit like, what the fuck am I doing? Where were you living? I first moved to Mid-City. Actually, scratch that. I, the first place I moved for just a month or two was Santa Fe and Olympic in a warehouse slash art gallery called The Treehouse. Way before downtown was cool. Exactly, it was rugged, and that corner is still rugged. But this was insane. And but we had, you know, my buddy started. He's from Detroit, also a blader. Um, and it was just a cool place to be. Well, was downtown a great place to rollerblade because nobody was out there? Yeah, or was there I mean, too many potholes and shitty roads to some extent. But you know, I had, you know, people throw trauma around a lot, so I, I'm. <laughs> hesitant to bring that up in this conversation but to be honest the way the magazine went under Mm. and the way i had kind of this quarter life crisis about starting over at 27 uh i i had to remove myself from rollerblading at that point uh and i didn't want to i still loved it i still skated but as far as work went i was just focused on being at the rental house uh building a whole new portfolio, you know, they let me take all the gear I could take awesome. for free. And this is like, I knew this wasn't going to be forever and I knew I had to take advantage of it. So this is actually how these big scenes that I do now spawned because oh. I could just like a kid in a candy store go nuts. And they didn't realize when they extended that offer to all their employees that I would be the guy to really take advantage of it this way. <laughs> so I'm taking out $4,000 rentals and putting on these massive productions that you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I figured it out. They're like, you can have whatever you want. I'll take everything. Yeah. And I did for way too long than they were comfortable with. But they so, really supported me and they were a huge help. 
Let's give him a shout out. Picks, unfortunately, is no longer around. No! I know. Obama! Yeah. <laughs> they were great, though. Picks Rentals then became PRS for a minute, but um, what's uh, Robert was my manager, and he was super helpful, and the owner knew what was going on, although I never saw him, but he didn't care, so it was just great. Let's fast forward to now. I saw something that you did, and I still don't even remember where it is, but it was this big spectacular thing at an intersection. With, I want to say there was a balloon flying. Like, you've got so much going on. Yeah. Which is great. Um, in a way, because... Okay, we both grew up in, in Illinois, and I'm sure your high school took you to the Art Institute, just like, sure. just like mine. And there's that great George Surratt of um the the people in the park oh the needlepoint yeah the, not the called the pointillism pointillism yeah where you know you 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 see it in the book and the teacher says yeah they're all little dots but then you go and you see the fucking dots it's insane and you're like george surratt you son of a gun yeah and i feel that way about you that there's so much detail in your photographs that I just want to just, I want it blown up and I want to look at it in person because there's so much happening. And then there's another part of me that's like, well, Tony, you know, all of this is fake. This isn't God's light, first of all, because you're shaking your head. You're saying, yes, it is real. <laughs> but there's lights everywhere. Just like we're in your garage right now and there's eight <laughs> lamps on. <laughs> and they're all old and it's like warm light. Yeah. I mean, they're all like vintage and it's great. And I feel like that's symbolic of, of how you, we'll see, yeah. of how you light your, your scenes. But also, it seems to me that there's got to be a lot of Photoshop going on or layers or whatever. And you're saying, no, you're shaking your head. It's, that all happens when you click the button? So it's a huge point of contention for me because of one journalist, in fact. <gasps> Who? Uh, I don't remember their name, but... Good for you. Here's the story. Uh, <laughs> Damn and, you, Bull Plashke. Well, first of all, just the disclaimer in the beginning. Everything is shot and directed and lit for one take. Wow. Now, that doesn't mean we don't shoot 30 tries to get everyone... Because everyone's doing something crazy. Yeah. And it's wild and it's all over the place. So you got to rehearse and you might as well shoot while you're doing it. Okay. So there... Out of all the shoots you see, you could certainly pull one frame from any of them, and it wouldn't look much different than the final product. Yeah. There does end up being compositing for most of them, but it's not this wizardry where I'm pulling elements in from other... I'm not a great retoucher. Hmm. I am just blending layers, people with their real backgrounds. I'm not cutting them out and moving them around. Right. And there's actually a few I can point to on the site, which actually were one take, uh, a famously one that was the biggest one I ever did because the client was Motorola and we had to shoot it on their phone and they said you couldn't composite it and you had to get it in one shot and I'm like, okay, we're renting out Coney Island. There's a lot of pressure here. You got 70 <laughs> people, you know, this is insane. But I knew I could do it because that's how we did every other shoot. Right. So it is all set up for one. I don't Photoshop lights out. They're just outside of frame. And, uh, you know, as far as the difference between if you saw an image right from camera and whatever other retouching, it's like 
dodging and burning and just opening up shadows in different places and, and bringing attention to where the action is. Which nowadays even journalists do. Of course. And they should. The whole idea that journalism is this pure thing and it has to be right at a camera with no uh, adjustments is ridiculous because the moments you take a picture, it's not reality. It's a picture. Mm-hmm. So for them to hide behind this thing, like, no, it's real because I was like, oh, it's a half stop underexposed. You're not going to let that guy open up the shadows because that's your rule. That's so dumb. Like, And in the olden times, they would dodge and burn. And it was so exactly. blatant that we can see it today. We're like, right. what's wrong with that guy's face? Right. Because it's so hard to do that in a in larger. Yeah. And why not use these tools that we have? And you know, of course, some people are going to take advantage of it, but mm-hmm. you should trust people who are in it for journalism to say, actually, this is real. I, I did this and that to draw your attention to certain places, but I'm not faking anything. Right. If I want to fake stuff, I would be an artist, not a journalist. Right. I got to say, now that you're telling me this, there's a picture that you have of a woman in a bathtub and a toaster is going into the bathtub. <laughs> And the whole scene is is crazy, but to me the craziest part is the cat. Yeah, there's a cat on a, either a stool or on the sink. Yep. And and I'm like, well, clearly he put that in there because no cat's gonna be that obedient. Okay. So there's so much to go into about that. <laughs> and first, I want to say that it is up in the Torrance Art Museum right now, four feet big. You should go check it out because seeing those details on that scale, like you said, is so different than seeing it on that computer. Yeah. And uh, the cat is absolutely up on that radiator. <laughs> and it, in fact, it's Lauren Randolph's cat. Lauren she, Lemon? She, yeah, she's in the bathtub. What? Wait. Yeah. That's her? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, this is, again, you're right. Yeah. This is why I got to see it in four feet. Yeah. Because I think I even saw it on my phone even, like even yeah. the worst way to see something. But you can pinch and zoom on the phone, but it's still, you're going to lose detail. Go go How to Torrance. How about that? Yeah, so uh, that was not too long after I first met her. She had just moved to LA. She was wrapping up a project about uh, shooting a portrait of herself every day of the year. Mm. It was called the 365 thing. It was this thing people did on Flickr at the time. Yeah. And I was just talking to her about it, and I was like, I couldn't imagine doing that I would get so sick of it. It's so much work. Congratulations, though. You must be so burnt out on it. And then that idea, I was like, well, we should celebrate this in some conceptual way that says you're burnt out. So literally frying herself in the bathtub with the toaster was the literal, you know, way to... And that's her sister, Caitlin, is trying to unplug the toaster before it hits the water so she doesn't die it's so it's kind of this dark but light story but that's also all very real like her cat millie r.i.p was on the radiator for not very long because cats don't listen we had her throw the toaster in the water dozens of times because to get that right moment when it splashes and the water comes out that splash is all real it's all real ryan you evil genius (laughs) i mean it took the patience of her to be in this bathtub with uh it was probably, you know, it's not like we had a heater on it, so she was probably freezing in the studio. Wow. Uh, I, I handed it all to them, and my brother Collins did the set design on that one, and it was just a fun kind of experiment in the early days of building sets. Approximately how long from when Lauren goes into the tub the first time mm-hmm. until you're until you're satisfied mm-hmm. are we talking? 
under an hour, uh, maybe closer to a half hour. It's hard to say, but that would be a fun thing to look back at the files because it's all time coded. <laughs> I would say somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes. There's another one of, uh, I just, I just think talking about animals on these things are fun yeah. because animals are hard to work with. Oh my God. Impossible. And cats for sure. I've got two and don't listen for shit <laughs> unless they're hungry. Right. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. I wonder if we bribed the cat. But I, I heard that through the back end. I, um, I used to work with a vegan who used to complain about the circus and mm. say that they would torture them with food and yeah. pain and shit. And, and I was like, hmm, how can I use this in a positive way? <laughs> right. And so therefore, I only take pictures of my cats right before they're about to eat. That's the only time they care about me. Yeah. <laughs> and they give you a look? They'll, well, they'll follow me to the kitchen. They'll follow mm. me wherever I'm going. Because they're, they're like, ooh, now's the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyhow, you did one, uh, a, a little short movie, uh, Me and My Arrow. Yeah. Uh, with a, uh, a corgi? Also, Caitlin Randolph with her corgi. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> going down... Uh, that's her walking yeah. the dog? Yeah, on Broadway downtown. You know, I guess I've never met the sister. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm surprised. You guys are both in Los Feliz walking around all the time, right? We are, but she's probably walking around more than I am. Yeah, okay. Um, anyhow, uh, walking down... Looks like Broadway. Yeah. And... Um, Thanks. You're a busy man. That <laughs> phone should be ringing more. I'm going to turn this. It should be ringing off. more. You're, dude, you're one of the best right now happening. Wouldn't you agree? I No, but I appreciate it. Do you have a manager? <laughs> yes. Okay, because I'll be the manager. Okay. That person's not hyping you I up I can always enough. use more. <laughs> We're not exclusive. It's okay. So, okay. they're walking. She's walking her dog down Broadway, this adorable corgi. She spills a, a bag, and it looks like it's Cheetos. It that, sure is. Those are Cheetos? Yeah. Was it cool for the dog to eat these Cheetos? I mean, we didn't realize how cool uh, Arrow would think it was until it happens because we're in the middle of the intersection and this is all live downtown. Traffic's coming. People are crossing. They're not hired. You know, they're just... Uh, None of those people are extras? No. Civilians. And uh, she spilled the Cheetos in a way that was meant to really go after the slow motion aspect of that. And then what we realized after the fact was it was more interesting to watch Arrow eat the Cheetos than it was for the spill. Because, you know, that moment is really hard to <laughs> fake where you want everything to go up at once. You know, I got out of this vape pen. I was like, the vape pen should go flying. I want the Cheetos. You know, you totally should eat shit in the middle of the intersection. And that's a lot to ask for. So um, thankful that... Arrow stepped in and was like, I'm going to be the star of the show. And just was mowing those Cheetos. And then <laughs> sprinting at the camera afterwards is another bonus we didn't expect. How did you get Arrow to look at the camera during that sprint? Because uh, it's think, all eyes on that lens is what it looks like. I think I just yelled and, and had him uh, come. Yeah, I don't really remember. I think we got lucky too. Um, but huh. we had a great DP, Cody Smith, on that one. And that was our whole crew, you know. A lot of these shoots are very small uh, personal projects. So it was me, Cody, and Caitlin and just figuring it out. Wow. Uh, now, some of the shoots have big, it's a big production. Sure. There's one that you did about um, a bus. It looks like an old Greyhound bus from like the 60s or 70s. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
either picking up or dropping off somebody in front of a telephone booth, mm-hmm. RIP telephone booths. Yeah. Um, and looking at the credits on your Instagram, there's a long list of people from yeah. costumers, which is great because a lot of this, a lot of that looked vintage too. Yeah. And perfect. Um, and then there's there's a character. <laughs> That I'm a little bit more hands-on. As you see, I have a crew of me. And then there's Jordan waiting for this. And that's it. And I don't mind working on teams, but it can be annoying. Yeah. And so, is a creative director a friend or a foe? Um, Always a friend, but on huh. that shoot, I'm trying to remember who was listed as that. I don't want you to name names. I'm just asking from one aspiring creative person to a real creative person... I don't want somebody telling me that dog can't eat those Cheetos. Oh my God. Well, now the only person who's telling you not to do something is the producer. Oh. And, and they're a problem. And I've come into that on uh, commercial sets where I was about to do this big spill, as I like to do. And the producer stops us and is like, You're going to get ketchup on the rug. And I'm like, Are you fucking kidding me? No, you don't come in and stop right when we're gearing up. I'm about to count the actor down. I got the actual creative directors from the agency there, and they're all for it because they don't care if we spill ketchup on the rug. You can clean it up. <laughs> but this producer all of a sudden is looking at their bottom line and how much money they can put in their pocket, mm. and I never forgave him for that. Um, I felt really bad about it, but the creative di- director is never going to stop you. Uh, well, not that I can remember. They're always wanting to get as wild as you do. So I love them, and I love uh, collaborating with them in a way that is you know, just getting out of your own head because the bus shoot, for example, I was the creative director because that was all me as a personal project. Oh, was it? But when it's an advertising shoot and you do have a real creative director on there, it's so nice to be able to bounce ideas off other people and get inspiration because you're thinking about a million different things and sometimes a new idea isn't one of them. Sometimes it's whether there's going to be ketchup on the carpet or not. Uh, (laughs) And so... No, I, I welcome them when we really? have the opportunity to work with them. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So, so rarely, if if not never, does a creative person veto an idea that you have? Um, they may veto an idea, but again, if it's a paid gig and I'm working for someone, I'm there to carry out their vision. So I don't get. It's not an ego thing for me. It's like if they don't like it, fine. It's not for me. I can go make my fine art. And then have all the control I want on the side. But when I'm working for someone, let's do what they need. And so absolutely, I'm going to do that 100% of the time and never be butthurt about it. I'm so glad to hear that. I think that's also my, maybe a Midwestern thing, too. <laughs> that we're easier to work with than your average person. I mean, I always love the metaphor that like, as you start on the East Coast and move westward, there's like uh, a softness that arises. So like... East Coast can be pretty hard edge and they have their ways. And then as you move over, the Midwest is kind of a little bit easier. And, and maybe, you know, it's cliche and you can't generalize the whole region, but they might be friendlier and reach out more. And then as you get towards the West Coast, uh, it's super laid back, but maybe then in like a passive way. So <laughs> it's it's a weird transition as you go across the coast. But yeah, I, we're also, we have pride for the Midwest. So we like to say we're the easiest to work with but
Well, we're here in Montecito Heights. Yeah, when people ask where we live, I always say it's near Highland Park because that's all they know about Northeast LA. Um, but yeah, they're pretty similar. Uh, this is, I wouldn't even say this is more hilly because there's a hilly aspect to Highland Park as it goes into Mount Washington, which is also directly across the way. Uh, and so they all kind of feel like the same to me. I lived in Cypress Park for a while and pretty similar vibe there. Lincoln Heights, um, Glassell Park, all is kind of this same, uh, Northeast LA, Nila, they, they're calling it now. So what attracted you to this area? Well, when, so like I said, we, I first moved to the crazy warehouse downtown, um, but then my brother moved here and uh, there wasn't another spot for him in the warehouse. So we got an apartment in Mid-City and that's just a place that's so random. It's like they happen to have a great apartment at a good price that had two parking spots. That's how we ended up there. But <laughs> Parking? Yeah, he... Uh, he had this vision of this warehouse space that he wanted to build out. And so he found a spot in Cypress Park and convinced me and my other buddy, Dan Busta, who's a photographer, to move there and start this photo studio. And so we did. It's still there. It's called The Forge. He's still running it. Um, I left there probably in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was so comfortable with the neighborhood, I moved to a little house down the street in Cypress Park for a while. Then when I met my wife, Agatha, we moved to South Pass for a little bit, which is lovely but expensive. So back to Montecito Heights, where she was actually living here before we met. Um, and it was just a great place to come back to. There's a beautiful view. We'll go up there afterwards. Okay. Um, it's just... You know, it's it's walkable in a way, even though it's hilly. It's not too far. You can walk to Island Park. So mm-hmm. there's a lot here. Are is there food spots in Montecito Heights, oh, yeah. or do you have to go to Highland Park? Um, our grocery store is here, which is uh, Elf, which is Fresco's, uh-huh. and Deb's is here. That's like the main thing that people know. If you say what's at in Montecito Heights, it's Deb's Park. Deb's Park. Yeah. Do you have a dog? No. What do you do at this park? There's a beautiful hike up to the lake, and I mean, what lake? Lake, lake is a stretch. I guess it's called Deb's Lake, but it's De- like a, it's a little got a lake too. It's a little pond, but um, um, yeah. How many water features are in parks around here? You know, you have Echo yeah. Park Lake, the reservoir. I don't think counts because you can't get near it. But right. uh, at Deb's, you walk right up, and there's ducks and huh. turtles and people walking their dog. And it's an amazing view of all around. Have you shot anything? Oh, this? yeah. Oh, so, have you? I don't know if you've seen the Them and Theirs series, which is about people in their cars. Yes. So I've done both a still version of a woman with her motorcycle there, and then we made a whole little short film around it. One of the things that you did that I liked a lot was um, it was a family. They looked like a mixed race family taking a hike, and I think it was in Monrovia. It was a falls um, yeah, Hermit Falls. Hermit Falls. Yeah. Was that Monrovia? Uh, so Hermit Falls is Cause it first... qu- not quite. It's close. It's on the way there. It is Angeles Crest uh-huh. or Angeles Forest. Um, I think it's closer to Sierra Madre, but yeah, around there. Because at first I thought it was this place I used to hike in um, Pacific Palisades. No. But 
which had a little baby waterfall. Right. Like, not much. Only only if it just rained will, will you see it. Right. But this seemed like there was a lot of water going on there. And even some creatures in the in the water. Um, Were those I, dogs? Were they... Well, the family did bring a dog, so I don't think we saw many fish that day. But yeah, there's probably just like little turtles and fish. It's a small yeah. creek. Uh, the waterfall is actually not that massive, but it is a fun little hike. And... If you've been to Adams Pack Station, which is an amazing place as a tourist of L.A., and I like to go to all these places, go visit there. From there, you can grab lunch, walk down to Hermit Falls. You can jump off a rock into it. Yeah, no. <laughs> Did you do that? Oh, yeah. Not, what? Not that day, but yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you're a gymnast. You you don't mind. There's there's a little one that's like 10 feet, and then there's a 40-foot one. Holy I've done both, but... um. What? It's it's just a cool scene because it's like this eclectic mix of people from all over uh, L.A. show up there. And uh, I don't know, you feel like you're in a different country just because it you have to hike a mile to get there. And like, how did all these people spring up here? And there's families and somehow old people get there. and <laughs> Which is why I love L.A. Yeah. Just drive 20 minutes. Yeah. And you're in Montecito Heights. Yeah. Drive another 20 minutes and you're in a totally different place. Mm-hmm. And and you get it why so many movies are filmed here. Because you can pretend that it's some other place other than California. Absolutely. And, and that's another reason I loved that shoot was... Well, first of all, I liked it because maybe there's just a cynical part of me. I'm like, this bastard, he's, he's always up to something. Like, <laughs> what... But on that one, you can't fake it. Yeah. It is nature. Yeah. Like, I don't imagine that you hauled up friggin' 18 tons of equipment. No, there's no lights. We just basically, and this was during, you know, COVID when there was a lull in between surges, but you still weren't going to go into a studio and shoot. And you still didn't want to have a lot of people from different households. So that family is a real family. It's basically me and uh, a co-director and a DP and one assistant for sound and uh, switching lenses, but very small crew. And it was a huge hustle because of that. You know, getting down to that water feature is a huge hike downhill, and then you got to go back up. And the poor French bulldog was the casualty in there. Uh, It passed out, and... It was like, is it going to be okay? But it just needed a little bit of water. And those wagons that... The whole thing was for this wagon company. And that thing became very heavy going back up. There's a lot of reasons why that became a struggle. But it worked out in the end. Um, Uh, Let me ask you about one more commercial. This was on the beach. And it was all these women taking off their clothes, Ryan. Yeah. (laughs) And jumping into the ocean. Yeah. And there was another animal in that one. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, Jinty. I'm sorry? Jinty. Jinty was the name of yeah, the, dog? the dog? Yeah. Um, it made, it made me think of a whole bunch of things. First, lens flare. Yeah. And I was like, is that real lens flare? And it looked real, but you never know. Well, if you're talking about when they're actually going into the sea... Then absolutely, because that was, we were planning to shoot into the sun, and 
There's all sorts of reasons why that was insane. But again, during COVID and it's all the way in England and... Oh, that wasn't here. Yeah. So um, I have a production company rep in UK who brought me out for this shoot. And it's a very conservative brand. And there's an ad agency in between who very much wanted to get everyone naked. And I was like, this does not seem appropriate for this brand. <laughs> but I'm not there to make that decision. You know, again... You asked about creative directors earlier. They're the ones generally trying to push it uh, further even because they want to make something compelling and not just another run-of-the-mill ad. Um, so we had kind of a lot of back and forth about that. I was like, look, I'm happy to do it. Uh, I'm not generally your nude lifestyle guy, but we, I can figure it out. And we're going to tell a story along the way. I'm, I'm very much interested in that, not just like getting them naked for shock value. Right. Um so there was a lot of elements, you know, it's England, so it could have rained, uh, it could have been overcast, we would have had to use fake sun flare, but we didn't. <laughs> Everything was perfect. The sun was out all day, the sea was very cold, and there's mm -hmm. like consideration about how long the women can be in the water for at a time, mm -hmm. because you can start to break down, they say, you know, 10 minutes per degree... I forget what the equation was, but there was like someone was watching a clock. Good. But the women, they were all actual real cold water swimmers. Oh. So they were used to it. They were like, this is great. This is no problem. We can stay in all day. Wow. Um, the dog was great. There's a big problem about whether the dog was going to be able to carry the shoe towards us. And it's funny <laughs> you bring that up because I ripped myself off in that from the arrow, the corgi shoe. How about that? Yeah. So because of that arrow, the corgi shot at the end of running towards the lens, we completely recreated that with that dog bringing the shoe towards the camera. Was that a trained dog? Like, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, Jinty was a pro. Because that's a lot harder to do. Yeah. Get a dog to carry a shoe. Well, especially a little dog. Right. And yeah, so we at first we wanted to try all these other uh, items of clothing that were just too big. Like the, the big puffer jacket wasn't going to work, you know. Jinty was swallowed by that thing, so... Thankfully, I thought that hiking boot would be too heavy, but she did it at least a handful of times. Do you feel offended when people compare you to David LaChapelle? No, I actually, I have a, a different photographer who I'm compared to more. And I always oh. like to bring up La Chapelle because I think he's a more appropriate uh, answer. Oh, good. Because he's very corny and gaudy and all the <laughs> negative aspects of my work, I like to associate with him because he just doesn't give a fuck. And he's a great inspiration for pushing limits in that way. You know, I don't go in the way of fashion and again nudity that he does right I, i'm less interested in it than telling a story but uh, i do like the kind of exaggerated very 90s vibe of his work and he does juice up his colors yeah. and lights and all that well stuff. that you know a lot of that's built into the content it, it's juiced up because they're wearing bright colors and mm -hmm. his backgrounds are bright and he's he's very much uh, carefully art directing that stuff himself. Yeah. Um, well, there's a picture that I've always loved of the Hilton sisters in front of this motel 
on I think it's um, I think it's La Brea um, near Mid City, and one day I passed this motel and I'm like, I've had this picture on my wall for 15 years. I can't believe this is a real motel. But also, the reason I've passed it a million times and never recognized it is because he juiced up the colors so much right. that it didn't seem like a real place. Right. Your your stuff does seem real, even though for that instance, you can't believe this cat is sitting there politely as this toaster is about to fry up our good friend Lauren. <laughs> but um, I'm glad to hear that you're not um, upset by that comparison. No, and... Um... You know, that was a time and place for this very saturated look. Uh, I do try and toe the line more between, because the actions are so outrageous, I want to tone down the visual a little bit to kind of find a balance where people aren't, again, dismissing it as being just Photoshop, um, which they're still going to do no matter what. I can't control that. Can we talk about creativity real quick? Because I went to the College of Creative Studies in Santa Barbara. And creativity to me was something I was paranoid about when I was young. And I asked the professor who got me into there, I was like, I, I was like maybe 22 years old. And I was like, I am filled with ideas right now. Is it ever going to go away? Should I like write as much as I can now before it goes? And she was like, why would you be worried about that? And I said, all my favorite musicians suck after like the third album mm -hmm. <laughs> true and those are only like 10 songs each and then it's over like you really only have 30 good songs in, in you mm -hmm. and only three of them are going to be hits that terrifies me and she was like you're not here to write songs <laughs> <laughs> right and your question isn't about songwriting it's about creativity and she said as long as you allow it to happen it will always be there. Yeah. Do you feel the same way about creativity? I do. And I, but I relate to both sentiments because I also heard some wild uh, quote from Steve Jobs that was like, any art made after the age of 30 is shit. And I always hated him for that. And I, there's too many good examples to prove otherwise. You know, uh, Willie Nelson is still making music. And the problem with why we think we don't grow uh, attached to a band's first, second, third album. And so there's a lot of history that makes us feel about music a certain way that isn't necessarily about whether they got better or more creative or not. Yes. And so it's it's a tricky thing to compare music to creativity and writing. How many authors do you know who have written their best books in their twilight years? Uh, Bukowski, his whole career was... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, his, his best work was after 50. Yeah. I mean, Klosterman, to have a more contemporary example, uh, to me is writing his best work now. And uh, mm -hmm. some people get better and better, and others, it's just how the public views it. Yeah. So I'm not worried about me coming up with ideas uh, in my older age. I'm worried about how people receive it from someone in my older age. Really? Uh, but another perfect example against that is my mother-in-law. She is 82 years old. She's been painting for 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and for the first time in her life, in the last four years, has gained a crazy amount of notoriety. She's in the Venice Biennale this year. Like, her career has exploded after being totally ignored for the majority of her life. Mm. So there's a lot you could say about how that happens, and the art world's a weird place. So yeah. 
I, I'm not waiting around for that, but I, it, the fact is that she stayed true to what she was doing. She still loved it. And I would say, arguably, her work is still getting better. And you just took a beautiful portrait of her. Absolutely. And that was, you know, what a privilege to be able to do that and crossing over with fine art and journalism in a way, if you want to call it LA Mag journalism. But, you know, it's a, well, it is what it is. My buddy Joseph Kapsch is, uh, is over there. So shout out Joseph. Oh, yeah. I think I emailed him the file. <laughs> uh, what hill was that that you posed her on? So that's her backyard. So it's in an uh, unincorporated area. The nearest actual town is Mountain Center, but it's actually not anywhere near there. Um, uh, per your other thing, I'm hesitant to re- reveal the actual location. All right, fire enough. It's in between He's... Idlewild and Palm Desert. Okay. You know. So that away. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, it, it was gorgeous. Yeah. And I'm a weirdo. I want to know every inch of L.A. Yeah. That's, that's why I'm doing this stupid podcast. Yeah. Is and, and I was like, that does not look familiar. No. So I'm glad to hear I was right. But I think to some extent it could have been. You know, there's the Montecito Heights open space to bring it back locally to the neighborhood. <laughs> I think I could make a pretty similar photo up there. Um, yeah. There, There's just like the pine trees were the big distinguishing character. But they actually... They have those in Deb's Park too. So, but you want to you want to be in her backyard. Yeah, that was the point. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's let's continue real quick with creativity. Um, for people who have what's called writer's block, does that happen with photographers? Yeah, I think uh, you know I have this conversation quite a bit with uh, my photo friends, and where a lot of us are in a collective called This is a Photo Blog, where we give each other photo assignments. And just try and keep that muscle going. And it's it's back to like photo 101 class where it's it could be something simple like go take a portrait of your friends. Uh, but it's just to keep you busy. And I see people fall off all the time, myself included, where you either half-ass it or uh, God willing you're too busy or you just don't have an idea and you're not inspired. So I think it happens with every creative uh, pursuit, but to me, I like to just have something, even if it's mundane, to always go out and do because something's going to spark. Um, I also am part of a group called Art of Freelance, which is two times a year for 10 weeks at a time. You declare a project. Actually, the bus thing is what I did for that. And at the end of 10 weeks, you show your cohort, which is a group of about eight people, what you did. And being held accountable to people and saying you're going to do something encourages you to do it. And I can't speak enough about having that type of community around you. Do you have a notebook where you sketch out these ideas like the bus and the, the bathtub and stuff? So you're, <laughs> you're nodding your head. Um, I would hope that you have way more ideas than you've already shot. Or do you not work that way? Uh, it comes and goes. Yeah, I've got a few sitting on the back burner right now, but yeah, sometimes there's really nothing there, <clears throat> which is why it's nice to have an outside assignment. <clears throat> you know, I like doing commercial work for that same reason, because you have an impetus besides just pure creativity to go from. Yeah. And you can bounce ideas off with the creative director, whoever's in charge. Um, but yeah, I try and 
keep a running list of ideas and uh, execute them as much. And there's also shoots that I've been sitting on that I need to get to. So like at this point, I'm working on a new book project about small museums in L.A. I have 20 of those shoots that need to be out there. So I got more than enough to go back to and, and work on and retouch. But one, one of the ones that you put on um, Instagram was a black couple at um, a museum of miniatures. Yeah. Was that the same museum of miniatures that was across the street from LACMA? Uh, I think what you're talking about is the, it used to be called the Craft and Folk Art Museum. Well, there's that one that was a little bit east of LACMA, but I thought there was like a true full-blown miniatures. Oh, maybe there was that I don't know about. Okay. I would have guessed that one of her pieces uh, ended up at the Craft and Folk Art Museum, but I don't know. And I, it was a long time ago. They also have some of her pieces at the Autry right now. Oh, cool. Yeah. So my question to you about that picture was, Mm -hmm. did you arrange those pictures to be like that? So we walked into the living room and it's Karen Collins is the artist and her husband, Eddie, who builds all the shadow boxes that her clay sculptures go into. And they knew we were coming. So they had arranged the room in a way that kind of had everything at our disposal. And so at first we had shot, you know, a handful of them individually, but then we did do quite a bit of rearranging to create a diorama of the dioramas uh, in the space. (laughs) There wasn't a lot of room to move around, so we could only do so much. But yeah, we spent a good hour, me and the guy who insinuated the whole project, uh, Todd LaRue, who had been to 650 of these museums, Wow. He had already been to her house before a couple times and included her in another exhibition at the library that he curated. So he had a sense of what we were going to do, and then it all kind of just came together. Is there something... We'll end it with this. Is there something that you are trying to say or imply when you have all this action happening in one frame? I don't think the the reason why there's so much going on in one shot is to say uh, overarching uh, or to have an overarching point across all the work. It's more each photo tells its own story. And so they're really only connected by the approach and the style that with the lighting and the wardrobe and props and locations, common themes pop up, but the individual stories have, uh, totally uh, random paths you wouldn't expect until we got in and talked about each one separately. You know, some of them are autobiographical, like the suitcase getting thrown off the balcony uh, at my old Saturn Street apartment. You know, I witnessed my parents go through that in front of me. My mom literally throwing my dad's shit out onto the street. So that one uh, really has an impact for me to look back on. How old were you when you saw that? Uh, probably 12 or 13. Yeah, it was tough. So no wonder <laughs> you're taking that picture. Sure. And, and was, was it emotional to do that shoot? You know what? Uh, I'm pretty good at repressing my feelings. So, uh, <laughs> I honestly did not make the connection until after it was done. I oh. think I had subconsciously blocked it out. I knew I wanted to create that cliche, but I always, during the whole like building and the pre-production of that shoot, I looked at it as that scene in a movie. I didn't talk about it as that scene from my childhood. Wow. 
until I finished it and spent so many hours staring at it. I'm like, oh my God, how have I not acknowledged that this is something that I clearly made because of this, you know, long kind of hidden uh, fear and memory of this event. Um, is this why women want us to go to therapy? Absolutely. I think everyone should go to therapy. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Are you? Oh, yeah. Well, whatever whatever makes your art, your art, <laughs> right on. But I love that picture. But again, I thought it was trick. I thought there's strings on this thing. Well, that's. I'm glad we brought this full circle because that's one of the few that is one shot. Huh. And the reason that was able to do that, because um, I had a lot of options that I wanted to play with but the only thing that's moving in that is the woman in the suitcase so since everyone else had to maintain the same pose over and over again they didn't really change as much as they started to in the future ones Mm. and that was one of the very first ones I did I will say actually the first one I did when I got to LA and I had all the access to the equipment so I hadn't started playing around with getting crazy with every single pocket that was very much about that one action. Everyone else held still. So to me, it was worth being able to say I, it was one shot to not make it a composite. Is there a spotlight on the suitcase? Everyone has their own spotlight. So, so there's a lot of lights on that. There's a reason why that has that very specific look, which does not feel natural by any means because nothing looks like that. Yeah. It's... it's all these spotlights that are focused in on just the subject. So each subject has their own light. Um, and then even further, I've used that approach when I've lit scenes more broadly, but I'll go in and burn in light yeah. to give it that more spotlit effect. I keep saying this is my last question. Hey, we got all day. Not according to Jordan, we don't. <laughs> Can I imagine that you do a giant photo one day with a hundred different elements, maybe 200 different elements, really just to show, just kind of show off. Be like, bitch, (laughs) look at what I can do. Well, I think that's what that Coney Island Motorola shoot was all about. And I don't know if you've seen it, but... I don't think I have. That had 70 people in it, and that's just people. If you factor in all the other elements, there's certainly over a hundred... And there's a lot of shit going on, and I did not do it to prove I could do something like that. In fact, if it was up to me, it would have been a smaller scale to some. It kind of was up to me, and then it wasn't. You know, it it kind of snowballed from its inception, but Motorola was the one who told me I had to do it in one shot. So there's no compositing in that one, and we shot it on a phone with constant lighting. So it's all these things that were not in my wheelhouse as far as I knew I could figure it out, but that's not how I typically worked. You took the picture on a Motorola, like a Razor or something like that? It was called the Moto X. It was like their first 21 megapixel phone. So we were showing off, it was the highest resolution of a phone at the time. And the idea was you singled out each pocket and we made a grid, a seven by three grid. And each pocket you could zoom in and see the detail And then there was a motion aspect to each detail, too. So we shot a little short film for each grid spot. You know, my mom worked at the Motorola headquarters in uh, Palatine. Yeah, right next to Schaumburg. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I've been there. Well, maybe technically uh, Schaumburg, yeah. Yeah, I think my cousin used to mow the lawn there. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big-ass lawn. Yeah, (laughs) I know. It's a beautiful campus. (laughs) You've been fantastic with your time. Thank you so much. Uh, 
people should follow you on Instagram. Just it's just your name. Yeah, Ryan Shooty. Uh, are you on Flickr? I still am. I don't uh, update there because they, you know, unless you subscribe, you run out of photos you can post. You don't pay for pro. I did for so many years, but then I was like, why? I don't use it anymore. I love it because I still think it's the best platform to look at photos. It is. But no one's there. You know, it's a lot of bird watchers. And uh, I love that too, but I need to use social media in a way to get more work and not just to have an archive. I actually like my website for looking at things even more than Flickr because you can zoom in. Yes. And so I encourage people to go there, but Which no one wants Which is yourname.com. Yeah. Can you spell your whole name for everybody? Yeah, it's R-Y-A-N-S-C-H-U-D-E dot com. Right on. Thank you so much, and we'll be seeing you blowing our minds in the future. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. How great was Ryan? You know who we would sit in a tub for as long as it took as a toaster was dropped into it? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, here's a simple toaster. Oh my God, here's a toaster oven. You know what, boys? Here's an oven that has a rotisserie and an air fryer in it. Every donation you hand over helps keep this insane project rolling. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rahman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Granke, Ben Welsh, Henry Furman, Jen Adams, The Lonely Chair, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, and Christina. Want to hear your name at the end of next week's show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you have to do is PayPal us 25 bucks or more, and we will list you in the Here in LA website. That'll be done one day, and it'll be there forever. You will also be given a number to denote how early you got in. For example, Angelino number one is Allie Miller. Two, George Wright. Two A is George Wright again. Thanks for the burritos. Three, Rita Joanne. Four, Jason Sutter. Five, Grant Houghton. Six, Rob Baker. Seven is Kev Chang. Eight, Brenda Garcia. And nine, John Griffiths. Just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. Want to support us, but you're donating all your money to Planned Parenthood because a woman deserves the right to choose what happens to her own damn body? Couldn't agree more. But you can still help. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Oh my God, post two. If you see me tweet something about here in LA, just retweet it. In fact, the earlier that you like one of the posts that you see on Facebook or retweet it, the better it is for the algorithm. So help us out if you can. And it's free. Tell your friends. Tell them how Here in L.A. is spelled, and it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify. Here in L.A. is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who needs a ride to LAX at 4 a.m., Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgone and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and everyone out there who loves what they love, even if it's rollerblading. You be you, G-Money. Taste the rain. Taste the rain. Taste the rain.